Welcome to Cashing In on Content Marketing. Each week, marketing experts will explain how to measure your content marketing results and communicate that value to stakeholders. I'm your host, Fractal Marketing Director, Amanda Milligan. On this week's episode, we have somebody who needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. He is known as the godfather of content marketing, is the founder of three companies, including the Content Marketing Institute, launched Content Marketing World, which I just went to for the first time this year and loved, co-hosts the podcast, This Old Marketing with Robert Rose, is the co-founder of The Orange Effect, which has the mission of delivering speech therapy and technology services to children, has written six books including the most recently, The Will to Die, which is released solely on audiobook, but for free. So go check that out. And I'm so thrilled to welcome to the show, Joe Polizzi. How are you doing, Joe? I'm great, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. No, this is a fantastic way to kick off the relaunch of this podcast. I know, about time. We've all been waiting for your relaunch. (laughs) And it's a privilege to be on the show and as you kick this thing off and a new adventure. So this is great. Thank you. That means a lot. And what I'd love to start with was something that I heard you talk about at Content Marketing World. And it's something that's really going to be the foundation of why people are even going to listen to this podcast. It's what everybody struggles with, I think, at some point in their careers. And that's selling what you do internally. So I think a lot of content marketers know what they're doing and they know why it works. They don't know how to make the case. And you spoke about the importance of always doing that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah, I would love to. It's a favorite topic of mine. And what's interesting, I had seven, whatever, key trends or key things for content marketers for for 2030 or to, to get through the next decade. And that was my number one was really selling the importance of selling internally and how critical it is. And what I think what a lot of content marketers don't realize is that content marketing programs get killed not because of lack of results. They almost always get killed because somebody in the organization does not understand what you're doing. It's really right. important to understand that because there are other people, most, in most cases, unless you're for a really small company or you're a solopreneur, other people control the purse strings of your budget. And I can almost guarantee that if you're at, let's say any size company bigger than 10 people, there are those people that will give you budget that do not have a clue about the philosophy behind content marketing, how long it takes, and the, you know, the, the storytelling focus and skills that it takes to, to build something up and to, to build a better communication program with your customers. So it all starts with selling internally. And, and what I would recommend is, before you start any kind of content marketing program, you have to start a content marketing program for your employees, specifically your executive team. And that could be as simple as every other week you're sending, you know, you know, I used to do it when I started working at Penton Media back in 2000, I started doing it through inner office mail where I would put little articles together and a little care package for each of the executives so they knew what we were doing and what we were trying to do and what the importance of, of content marketing services specifically for our company. And that really helped. I mean, don't get me wrong. It took some time. It, this was not something that just happened right away. But I, I knew from the start when I, I took over, I started at Penton in 2000. I took over the department about 18 months later. And what I quickly realized is not only did no one have a clue what content marketing was, is they didn't care enough to even include it in overall projections 
Oh, wow. Uh, and I was scared. And we were a small team. And I'm like, this is not going to last very long. And this was 2001, 2002. This is when the floor dropped out of the media business. And I'm like, we're, we're going to have to do something. So I started this. And probably after about six, seven months of sending these care packages on a regular basis, started to get invited to certain meetings. And when I reached out to publishers and reached out to the CEO and the CFO, they actually returned my emails and my calls, which wasn't <laughs> happening before because of this, because I got on their radar. Wow. So it doesn't have to be a huge initiative, but it has to be thoughtful and it has to be consistent. You can't just throw out something one month and then skip a month. You have to do it consistently. And so I don't know if you have an internet or you have, you can use email, or if you still have inner office, I still love printed paper, works really, really well. But it's important that you get people behind you simply because of the fact that content marketing programs take so long to take root. So you're actually showing by example, by doing it internally first, that how long it takes. You have to. Oh, I'm, and I was desperate to find case studies on content marketing and I would send them. I'm like, oh, here, and it's much easier today. But back right. 20 years ago, I'm desperate because it wasn't even called content marketing. So I'm like, I'm desperate to find all these examples and put them in. And, and they got easier as we went along as the Red Bulls of the world started to get into it. But but then, yeah, you absolutely have to put it together. And I, and I coordinated it just like any other content marketing program. Here's one we're going to send it. We're going to send it every Friday. We do it every week. Here's some things I need to focus on as I go through, add the case studies, and, and we'll see what happens. Right. This reminds me of something else you've talked about where you're saying it's time to get rid of the concept of a campaign, right? Something you just do for a few months and then you throw away and then you start all over again. It's instead, how can we look at this vision that's going to last for much longer and get people to buy into that. Well, don't you just, I can't stand the word campaign. It <laughs> bothers me. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with marketing campaigns. I mean, marketing campaigns have been around forever. You know, we'll, we'll do a marketing campaign around a product launch. It lasts nine to 12 months. We'll have a budget specific for campaigns. But for example, like a political campaign, which thankfully ends, at some point, <laughs> a political campaign ends. And when you say, I have a content marketing campaign, you are already projecting the fact that you are going to end it. And here's the thing with content marketing, as you know, a content marketing program should never end. It should evolve. It should change. You're going to tweak it as you go, but you're never going to end it because you're basically saying, well, I'm not going to communicate valuable information to my customers anymore. Right. And so you're already telling the people in your organization, you're telling your customers, if you're, talk, if you're talking that way, that, oh, this is a short-term thing. I'm going to communicate this way in order to sell more stuff. And then when I hit my goals of selling more stuff, I'm going to stop giving you great information. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's just the connotation of the word doesn't, doesn't do well. No, I mean, you see it. I mean, look at all the media, look at any of the large you know, marketing sites that cover marketing or cover content marketing. They always say content marketing campaigns and Back in the day when I was, when, you know, nobody, nobody knew what content marketing was and they were just starting to talk about it. I would always write in the comments on those articles. Please don't use campaign. I can't. No, I know. We, we totally <laughs> used it before. And then when I heard you say that, I'm like, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, we've been trying to think around like what other type of language can we use? That's in marketing all the time though. I feel like all these kind of buzz terms and words that have almost lost their meaning over time, where we're not using them the same way as other people and the meaning doesn't communicate the way that we actually meant it to. I, I would agree with that. I don't think 
that most marketers, when they say campaign, think about the ramifications that what you're sending out and saying that it's going to stop because you're basically talking yourself out of a job. Right. <laughs> you have to restart <laughs> or, or you have to restart, right? Oh, we're going to do this huge campaign and then we're going to stop that and we're going to do something completely different, which may have worked in the past in the advertising age, if you will, but certainly doesn't work today. Right. So what would you say to somebody who gets this initial buy-in, right? They get the rest of their team on board with the concept of content marketing and they're a couple months in and suddenly they're having a case of imposter syndrome or they're freaking out a little bit because they know that they have a lot riding on it and they're not sure it's going to pay off. What would you say to those people? Well, welcome to the club is what I would say. <laughs> is what I would say because the first, let's say day one to day 270, you know, if you got the first nine months or so, sometimes you don't know. I mean, it's interesting when we launched Content Marketing Institute, I launched the business officially on April 2nd, 2007, and I did it with the blog and my blog was called The Content Marketing Revolution. And of course, the idea was to continue this thing and to educate, but I didn't know how long it was going to take root. I didn't know that it would take, I mean, I don't want to scare anybody, but it took about 20 months to really see that this thing was making a difference. I mean, sure, I had lots of qualitative information and I saw that our, our email newsletter subscribers were growing, but I didn't know if we were going to have an impact on a true business model until... I got to, let's say, about 10,000 subscribers. And then you could say, oh, now I can see the potential. And then as you go further, then you start to look at those people that subscribe and engage in your content and what they do different from those people that don't. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're measuring all of these things the right way that you should as a good marketer, you'll start to be able to tell things. You'll start, like we, for example, we knew that people that subscribed and read Chief Content Officer Magazine, which was launched in 2007, we knew that those people were way more likely to come to Content Marketing World, which was our big moneymaker. So, mm -hmm. but I didn't, I didn't have that right away. So you have to have a little bit of faith in what you're doing. Of course, set out the listing posts, talk to as many of the readers as possible in however you can. I would even say if you can call them and talk to them, that's why content marketing world was great. Cause I could talk to people face to face. What do you right. like it about CMI? What do you don't like? What would you like to see? And that really, really worked out so that, you know, by, you know, two years later, as we had the magazine, it was really starting to, to take off. And I would go to marketing events and I talked to a chief marketing officer and he would have the magazine, he or she would have the magazine with them. And I'm like, oh, if that's not the best thing in the world, this is actually working, but you have to have the patience. So, so okay, after all that, I'm, I've rambled. But what, <laughs> I, what I would say is you have to set the expectations for a length of time and the consistency it's going to take. So if you set your expectations with your executive team that, hey, we are not going to have significant results for 12 months doing this. Now you're going to be doing a lot of other marketing stuff, but let's just look at your content marketing. Well, this could be podcast, could be video series, could be your social media content, e-newsletter, whatever. Set it, the expectations so that you know, hey, we'll come back to give us a leash long enough to give us 12 months. And then in 12 months, I'm pretty confident that I can come back and give you enough that you're going to say, yes, you're on the right track. Keep this thing going. Right. Is there a way to kind of prove little wins along the way just to keep people 
bought in and because if it's going to be that long i think people worry about that that sometimes they say well what can i give them now right like when people ask me how it's going oh i absolutely oh absolutely i don't want to say you're not going to see eddie for nine months or 12 months but yes you can absolutely see where people have subscribed or you're tracking people that have engaged if you have a marketing automation system or something like that you can say okay this person who bought x amount they first found out through this research paper we created and then they, before they bought, they watched this video series or they downloaded this podcast and became a subscriber. You know, those types of things you can absolutely prove. The challenge is, especially in B2B enterprises, you know, your, most sales cycles will take six, nine, 12 months anyways. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to prepare for that. So how do you measure anything until you get through a full sales cycle? Right. You really can't do that, but absolutely set up the measurements and you can do a lot of qualitative stuff. You can take a lot of what I would call vanity metrics, Mm -hmm. social media shares. I mean, the executives love that, right? They're like, (laughs) Oh, it's been shared a thousand times on Twitter. And Oh, somebody, somebody posted it on LinkedIn and it went viral and all that kind of stuff. Those are all good things. Now, will you show sales for that? Probably not now, but as you pick up subscribers and you actually build an audience, you'll be able to show that more, I guess, in more of a solid fashion later. Mm-hmm. So what about people who have been doing content marketing for a long time? That's already established at their company, but they want to take a bigger risk. You've talked about, I think it was in a Twitter video, how you've taken several risks in your life, like leaving a six-figure job to create Content Marketing Institute. Those bigger choices where people think it's the right thing to do. Like what made you make those leaps? What was it instinct? Was it research you did? Well, first of all, in leaving Penton and starting the business, I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So that that was just a thing where I was talking about launching a business forever. And my wife finally said, Joe, either stop talking about it or do it. <laughs> so please just, just make a decision to do it. So I, I finally decided to do that. So that's that's the risk. And it felt like a really big risk at the time. I guess looking back, it isn't because if you, whoever listening to this, if you're in an enterprise, whatever size business you are, you got, I mean, I hate to say this, but there's no loyalty today. You're not going to stay at that company for 30 years. Like my father stayed at Ford Motor Company. You know, Mm -hmm. that stuff doesn't happen anymore. So you have to take care of you. You have to think about you. And sometimes you have to make a jump that may seem risky, but really isn't. So if if going after your passion and doing something you really like, even though the money may not be there now, you know, that's maybe isn't a risk. Maybe right. for your life, that's actually something that you should have done a long time ago. Sometimes we think the risky things that we look at on paper in the present really aren't that risky when you look back on them. I would say that for launching the business. The one thing I would say about thinking big, and here's where a lot of marketers get it wrong. They're like, oh, I want to think big. We have all these channels that we can communicate in. We can do social media and you'll get tweet and do Facebook and now we can do podcasting and video series and all kinds of stuff. I mean, there are hundreds of different things that you could do. So they think because they can do those things that they should do those things. And that's where it gets them into trouble because that's where you see all the failure happening. They're like, okay, we're going to do this big content marketing thing. We're going to launch all these things at the same time. And then they fail because of the fact that that's not how you build a media brand. And maybe because I came from media and publishing, I understand a little bit better because I've been through it. How do you build a content brand? Well, you do that by starting with one content type and one channel and deliver consistently over time. 
Look mm -hmm. at how the New York Times did it. Look at how Red Bull did it. Look at how Huffington Post did it. Look at how BuzzFeed did it. All of them. They launched the same way. They launched with one content type within one channel and they consistently delivered over time. Then when they built that audience, then they were able to diversify and do other things. Like right now, of course, New York Times is in the events business. They sell products directly. They do lots of different things, but they did just the newspaper for a long time. Huffington Post just started with one blog. Now they have you know, 100 different blogs, 200 different blogs, but they started by building an audience one way. So I would go big. And if you're going to say, take that risk, go big and thoughtful and focus on one audience and be great at one thing and do that better than anyone else. And if you could do that, you will build an audience over time. And then you can go ahead and diversify later and do all the, all the fun, fancy stuff that you think you should be doing and diversify like a big media company. But it never, you can never do that from the start. You, have to, you always have to start simply. Right. Don't take risks in every aspect of marketing at the same time. Well, it's, I'm sorry, it's not a risk. It's, I don't want to say it. It's probably ignorance. It's not stupidity. It's ignorance. And I yeah. get it because you want to do all those things because you can today, but that's just not, not how audience buildings, building works. And the funny thing is, even though we have all these social media channels and the consumer is in control and they can go get their content everywhere, it still works that way. It's, mm -hmm. it's still the same, even with all these new media companies that, I mean, you look at all the media companies today that are launching just by launching one e-newsletter and they start that way. And now they become this big enterprise. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I was flipping back through Content Inc., which was a couple of years ago, I believe. And you, there was a part where you said like the most important thing people need to be thinking about is the subscriber. And I think it's exactly for what you're saying. It's, it's so much easier once you've built that loyal base to move into anything else. You're, start, you're not starting from scratch anymore. You're starting with a group of people who's already bought into your brand and understands what you're trying to do. Oh, it's so true. I mean, once you build an audience, once you have opt-in subscribers, that will afford you the ability to do all kinds of amazing things and diversify in, in all kinds of ways. Because once you get that one channel and let's say it's a, let's start with a podcast, right? Just like you're trying to do. You're relaunching this thing. You're going to build an audience on this platform. And then when you get to, hundreds of thousands of listeners, then you could say, wow, I have hundreds of thousands of these subscribers. I'm probably, you're probably going to have, let's say an opt-in newsletter that goes with this so that you can get direct communication control with those, mm -hmm. not say control, but as much as control as you have by getting their email names. And then you can start to really listen to that audience and listen to the feedback and see what else is needed. Like, so maybe the follow-up to this podcast is an event, or maybe you sell different products through that but you have to have the subscriber first to then figure out how that subscriber's behavior will change. <laughs> right. so, so you can't just change behavior off of one piece of content. Very, <laughs> very hard to do that. I mean, you could do that. You could, you know, Oh, I'm going to do this, con these conversion techniques and all that stuff, but they're already bent that direction if they're converting. So you have to take time and communicate to them thoughtfully. And then once you build them, build that audience, then you can do some, some really creative things. Right. So otherwise it feels like, I'm just making decisions in a vacuum if I were just to be guessing without having anybody to, to get well, the... And if you, but if you start with, without a thought on building, so what I would recommend to people starting is set a subscriber goal. So let's say you're starting this email newsletter and you're going to say, all we're going to do is do this consistently. We'll promote it and do all those things, but we're really just going to focus on this great email newsletter till we get 10,000 subscribers. And then... Just go do everything and focus on being great at that goal. 
and hit that and you're not going to worry about, I have to sell this, I have to insert this sales messaging, I have to do that because that's what will happen if your primary goal is about selling a widget because you're going to put that stuff in the content and then it's not going to work. So it has to be all about solving the pain points of that audience, their needs, what's going to help them live a better, better life, get a better job, whatever the case is. And then you can monetize that later in the process. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to backtrack a tag because something you said reminded me of something in the will to die, actually. I'm on, I think, about chapter five. Oh, you're I, early. Okay. It's yeah. Gonna get, so, it's going to get crazy. Uh, I can tell already. <laughs> oh. I was listening to it. And for those who don't know, it's like a suspense thriller, but it also has a lot of marketing aspects to it, which has been really fun. I haven't read anything like that before. And you're talking about taking risks or, you know, doing things, trying to get justification for things that other people don't have buy-in. And you have characters in this book and like chapter three and four who go to this pitch meeting and are nervous because they're not sure if they should deviate too much from the norm, but then ultimately decide that's basically what they have to do in order to stand out or even make an impact because they know that that's the case. And it was really fun for me to read that in the book because it's, it's just reinforces. I didn't expect it out of a fiction book, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're getting a business book in a thriller format. I've heard, it was awesome. <laughs> I heard, yeah, I actually, I got an email today from one of the readers and they were given the, some really good feedback and said, I never thought I was going to, I'd be reading your novel and it'd be a marketing book. And I said, well, it's not really a marketing book, but you do, if you start it from beginning to end, you'll see the evolution of the business and you'll, you'll pick up on a lot of the stuff we're talking about here. It's just, That's what I noticed. It's like, this is the stuff I already knew we would probably be talking about. And it was in this book, but it was a great example, even within the story of how sometimes it's too much of a risk not to take that risk. If you're just going to blend in with everybody else and offer the same thing everyone else is offering, you're probably going to lose business that way. Well, no, normal, it's, remember back in the day, it's like they always said, you can't go wrong by choosing IBM, that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the, op- it's the opposite today. You can't be normal. Right. You will never, ever stand out by being normal. So you have to do things differently. And, and obviously, I mean, you, you know, we were just talking about the launch of The Will to Die. I mean, who launches a book and gives it away in just one format, audio, and does mm-hmm. it for free? I'm basically following my own advice on building an audience. I don't have an audience in the fiction world. I have an audience in marketing. So how do I build an audience? I have to take away all the barriers that I can. And I don't want to focus on, you know, four or five different content types at the same time. I want to be great at one thing. So I said, well, just focus on audio. And I haven't seen many authors do this. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves and if the experiment works so far, so good. But it's just, that's, that's just what I believe will work. And if I just launched it like everyone else, maybe I would sell a couple copies, but I I don't think that I could build an audience. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask, since you were doing this in such a unique way, if there's anything that this experience has taught you, I know it's still pretty early on that has reinforced what you already believe or shown you some different things about marketing in general. Well, the one thing that... I mean, the first day of downloads from the launch was, you know, were unbelievable. And we had 1,500 or 1,600 downloads yesterday. So I'm already, and that's just through, you know, my friends tweeting it out, which was fantastic. I'll totally take that. But I, I think that because we talking about doing something different, it was a lot easier for people to share 
without saying, oh, you, go get this book, but you got to give Joe an email address or go get this book. It costs $9.99 at Amazon or whatever. I, there's, there's literally no barriers. And I even put in a lot of it because there's been a lot of you know, questions from people who don't listen to podcasts. Like, oh, I'm like, hey, it's okay. You can still listen to it on your computer. You could still. And it, I had to become okay with the fact that some people right now would not engage in the book because they don't listen to audiobooks. But that's another thing when you're talking about audience targeting. I knew exactly who my audience, my audience is people that listen, people that like thrillers, one, that also listen to thrillers via audiobooks, two, and my primary audience was marketers who <laughs> listen to audiobooks that like thrillers. Right. So I figured if I, and that's what I, I mean, that's a very specific audience. And I think that's what everyone has to do. Because the more specific you can be with your audience, the more fine-tuned you can be with the content and the approach to marketing the content. And that's what I hope I've done, Amanda. I think think it's going to work. I mean, if I get a big, you know, two months, if a big publisher comes to me and wants to throw a deal at me, I'll definitely be listening. It would be fun to see that. But I don't think any other way, you know, even going out to, to agents at the beginning of this process and publishers, I mean, who's Joe Polizzi? Joe Polizzi, yeah. Joe Polizzi wrote a couple of good marketing books. I can go get a, a nonfiction book published tomorrow with a real publisher, but nobody's going to listen to me on the fiction side. So what do you do? You have to think a little bit differently. So hopefully, hopefully we've accomplished it. And I'll have to report back on, on everything else. Yes, we're recording this in December. It's going to go live in January. So you'll have to send me an update. <laughs> For people who don't know, he's actually chronicling this experience on Twitter as well. So if you're interested to see how it continues to go, check out Joe's Yeah, Twitter, Twitter. And, and the LinkedIn folks are pretty interested. I've been posting some videos there. And actually, that's a, one of the learnings for people that use, I w- I'm surprised. So I've been trying, I've been testing out videos on all the platforms. I've been testing out on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on Facebook, both my Facebook personal page and my Facebook fan page. And by far, the best traction is LinkedIn. And I did not expect that to happen. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird. And, and I was actually, my son's a YouTuber, so we've been talking about this stuff. And he's been asking me about my video strategy. And I thought that because I have a large Twitter audience, that Twitter would be the best place to go. But Twitter, as you know, I mean, if you don't get traction in the first hour, yeah, kind of gone. But what happens with LinkedIn when you post a video you still get traction three, four, five days, seven days and on where it just keeps going and going and going. And now I don't know if that's their video, that's their video algorithm or what they're doing, but it is, it's amazing to me, the consistency of views on videos on LinkedIn versus other platforms. That's right. Yeah. I would not have thought that either, but it makes sense. You're right. Things get so easily buried on Twitter. And if you are creating something engaging on LinkedIn, it's so much more likely that people will see it <laughs> and be able to like it and view it. So that's definitely Yeah, who knew that? And I didn't realize the amount of engagement on LinkedIn. It is unbelievable. How- well, and I, it's, I'm glad to hear that it's working for you because I started to think that LinkedIn was becoming almost too diluted. It's like people thought it was working and then everyone's on there now. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe it's not worth going on there, but it sounds like there's still an opportunity. So. Well, I will include it in my final report, Amanda. But, <laughs> but right now, right now, LinkedIn's winning by a long shot. So we'll see. I'm going to, you know, keep continuing to do this through, through the initial launch. So hopefully it will continue because right now I like what I see. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So I'm going to close out every podcast episode with the same question for people, which is what do you think is the biggest mistake that content marketers are making when they're trying to get buy-in for their project? Well, we talked about some of this. The biggest mistake is probably not setting the right expectations. I think we go in as content marketers, we're all amped up. We've got a great idea. We're going to start creating some content, whatever that is. And they, they don't say that it's going to take a long time. So I like to really put it out there as much as possible and say, this is a commitment to customers. This is a customer facing approach to communication. This is different. This is not, we're not pitching product here. We're building a relationship. We're communicating differently. We're communicating better because the long-term approach to this is not to sell more products, believe it or not. I mean, that, that will hopefully happen, but the long-term approach is to create better customers. So if you think about creating better customers, that's what we're trying to do. And that goes along with setting the expectations, having the executive team and the people around you understand what the real goal is. So if you go in with that real goal and say, look, we all need to know, here's the mission right off the bat. We're trying to create better customers and then explain what that means for your business. If you do that and do that well, I think you'll be way more successful rather than what I've seen with some of these launches that just, they start off that somebody sends a release. Oh, Verizon's launching a news site. This has got to be fantastic, which they did called sugar string. And three months later it was killed because they set off these huge expectations and then, Oh, they ran into a, a little bit of controversy and closed the whole thing. Well, who does that? I mean, come on, this is terrible. Let's set the right expectations. What we're trying to do will evolve as we go and we'll be much more successful that way. I love that. So much of it is just about the messaging. I think a lot of people are really good at explaining the technicalities of what they're trying to do and they'll do a whole presentation on that. But like you said, framing it as a commitment to customers, explaining exactly what the mission is and why you're putting all that money and time into it. I think that's where a lot of people are struggling. So I think that's a great point. Well, I hope I mean, that's why I did the speech. It was, I've never done a speech like that, but I was almost taking my 20 years of frustration <laughs> and content marketing out and say, please, I'm begging people, please don't just go launch stuff. Pave the way first before you do that for success. And you have to do some things up front. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you did that because I had a feeling that people were struggling with it, but to see you give that talk it's like, oh, okay, this is not, not <laughs> a guess. This is something that's happening across the board. If I see another, I'm so tired of seeing all these blog posts go out and say, oh, content marketing, another failure. And then you really look into it and see what happened. Well, somebody else in the company killed it because they didn't understand what was going on. Right. Well, we're hoping to prevent that now. There you <laughs> this go. Podcast. Absolutely. So knowing that that's our goal, do you have anybody you'd recommend to be a guest on a future show? Oh my gosh, it could go on forever. I mean, half the speakers in content marketing world, Andrew Davis, Robert Rose, Ann Handley would all be great people to start with Jay Okunzo. They're all wonderful at this. And I think the, the interesting thing about those people is they've been through all of this. You know, they're, right. all, they're all content creators, but they've all seen the business side as well. And I think that's what's important. And that, by the way, that's a content marketer to me today. A content marketer just isn't somebody who creates content, tells stories. They also need to understand the business revenue model behind that. And that's what, you know, that's what I would look for in a guest. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I'd love to have them all on. Well, thank you so much again, Joe. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, man. Again, good luck. Thanks. 
For more insights and exclusive resources on how to justify content marketing, join our email newsletter by going to frac.tl, clicking on our work, and then podcast. See you next week.